0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the new year and to the Content Clearing House. I'm Brett Chisholm, and I'm Josh Evans. So, if you're Nostradamus, you already saw this episode coming, or maybe you just wrote some vague and seemingly unrelated lines of poetry that anyone could shoehorn into present-day disasters. And after those confusing predictions, Josh is going to show off just how much research he did about the speed of light to discuss his favorite book series. The Lost Fleet, by a man with two fake, but manly names, Jack Campbell. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh.
1: We did it. (laughs)
0: 2020 I is
1: behind us. How are you? I, I'm i doing pretty good. How were your holidays? Oh, it was awesome, man.
0: Whole lot of chilling at home with the family and not working. So it was great. Uh, you know, I have a question for you. Uh, did you let your daughters sit on any uh, laps of the out-of-work actors dressed as Santa? COVID-infested Santas? Nope. <laughs> no. no.
1: It's really unfortunate because this is Violet's first Christmas and she's not getting to do any of the awesome holiday-related activities, but
0: I figure it'll all come back around. Is the mall mall Santa, is that a, considered like an awesome Christmas activity? When
1: you're one,
0: sure. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> they, children have much lower standards than us. Yeah. How about you? Well, I don't know. Have- um, no, I didn't sit in any mall Santa laps this year, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the previous years. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a pastime for me. No, I wouldn't even let our dogs sit in a mall Santa lap. I don't know. I think it's kind of weird, but. I will say the social distant Santa solutions. I don't know if you've seen some of these, but I'm going to put a link to a video that I found that I think is pretty hilarious. Um it's a Santa Claus inside of a snow globe.
1: Oh, seems yeah. like a very uh thematically appropriate way to handle that.
0: Totally. Ah, it's better than Zoom Santa. Instead of sure.
1: snow, is it like blowing around like
0: COVID masks inside the thing? So in this video, he was just like uh, sprinkling some snow in in front of his face, but he's not wearing a mask because he's in like a you know um, a sealed uh, hermetically sealed ball. Basically, I'm not sure if he can breathe. I have in seen. There. <laughs> I, I'm sure they they switch out his shift before he
1: asphyxiates, but I have seen. Uh, some santa videos of santa's wearing like big like ppe clear masks it's very uh it's very appropriate for the times you know like, i'm sure the kids are really fooled
0: yeah saint Apocalypse. Apocalypse. no i I have, no, <laughs> okay, I have nothing good one <laughs> do you do you have any new Should year's have written resolutions da- that one down first <laughs> or uh, did you did you make any new year's resolutions have you, have you failed at any New Year's resolutions already? I don't typically
1: make New Year's resolutions, but I did make one this year to never mention one-wheeling again on this show. <laughs>
0: hey, that's what I had on. <laughs> that's what I have. Uh, I, have a, I have a feeling we're both going to fail. <laughs> Big time. Uh, yeah, actually, about that. Uh, sorry, Wiley. I hate to already break this New Year's resolution, but it is for an exceptionally good reason. So I actually received a gift from a friend and I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This is the first piece of fan art for our show. Seriously, oh, we right. lack in number of listeners. We more than make up for with the quality of our listeners. I mean, how many shows do the hosts actually talk to every listener by name? We're on a first name basis with all of our listeners. It's pretty good. <laughs> we know them all. Yeah. Okay. So back to the fan art brace yourself for this josh i'm going to show you this over the skype video whoops got to put it the right way
1: i'm ready oh yes so, it is yeah wow that is like a three dimensional one wheel sorry everyone sorry um <laughs> it's like a three dimensional one wheel made out of wood it looks like yeah and then it yep. has the
0: content clearing house
1: burned uh, into like burned it or something into the
0: wood yep exactly and the wheel spins oh, that's really cool isn't that awesome wow. dude i'm you I'm post up so some video of that on the instagram on absolutely um so shout out to our friend nina uh she came up with the idea and the design and her friend jess ha- actually has a company that uh, specializes in wood art uh it's super cool like just holding it like the detail on it, the three dimensions, the wheel spinning, like the, the burned text, like it's it's freaking awesome. So I'm going to link to the Instagram in our show notes. Uh, Inner Box Designs is the name of the company. Super amazing. Shout out. Uh, awesome awesome piece of one wheel content clearing house art. All right. Well, I guess we will try next year for uh, cutting back on the one wheel talk. But already failed. That is awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. That is great. Love that. Super awesome. Hey, another thing I want to mention um, before I get into just a brief off top. Another legendary listener, Nate, brought something to my attention. So he was recently listening to our last episode on the way to the drop zone. Of course you have a lot of skydiver listeners out there. So you, you recall. Gotta skydive. Gotta skydive. Uh, you recall, Josh, discussing Inside Out. And how the movie supports this notion that we are just a collection of various impulses, pushing our buttons, pulling our levers from within. And the whole concept of the film dispels the myth that we have control over our lives and even implies that we don't have a freaking soul. So the same night that Nate listened to our episode, he saw a preview on Disney Plus for a new upcoming Pixar movie called Soul. Oh interesting. <laughs> there it's like going in a completely opposite direction of inside out and the tagline for the movie is everybody has a soul. Joe Gardner is about to find his. It's gonna be a <laughs> jazz based uh, Pixar movie. I'm gonna link to the trailer. It looks freaking awesome, but it's it's very interesting to see a complete 180. They must have read you've all Noah Harari's uh, little f-bomb section there and said we got guys we gotta get to the drawing board here and instill some faith in our viewers (laughs) that we're not just
1: heartless yeah yeah that's cool like pixar definitely i mean when they pick a theme they go like so deep into it and it's really you know I, i would imagine like some of these themes are probably based on personal beliefs of people at the company or the writers that they're hiring or whatever. So it's, it's really interesting that they're you know able to take like these opposing viewpoints. And honestly, I would expect nothing else because I imagine whatever they apply their time to is going to end up being just very well researched and just very impactful. So man, that sounds great. I'm always yeah. excited when new Pixar film comes out.
0: Absolutely. Me too. And I, I and I agree. Like, I, I don't think that, they're necessarily like opposing views even like, I think that this is just, you know, we are storytelling creatures. This is like the reason I love content so much and I love our show so much so we can talk about content. Like we like things, uh, inherently when they have a beginning, a middle and an end. And we try to fit things into a narrative cause we are just, we are storytellers at heart. And, uh, you know, the stories really shape our, our lives. Uh, not just our entertainment, our our very essence. So just to have like a, a different type of story, I think, is just really cool to explore. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, that's great. I had not heard about that, so thanks for yeah. bringing that to my attention. It's definitely Absolutely. going on the list. Ever-expanding,
0: infinite list of content. <laughs> There's a lot out there. That's why we got to clear Indeed. it out sometimes. So do you have anything else before I jump into this off-top?
1: No, I am ready to hear what you got, buddy. What'd you all bring right. for us?
0: Well, have you ever heard of a man by the name of Nostradamus? Hmm, it does sound familiar.
1: Isn't he that uh, old guy that was wrong about all those predictions?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're. Yeah, some might agree with you, some might not. <laughs>
1: So, oh, wait, um, let me rephrase. Isn't he that old guy that made all those really vague predictions that could be applied go. to any number of scenarios? <laughs> and kind of like a
0: horoscope. Spot on. Well, you're going to love this off top. So, uh, Nostradamus was a French astrologer, physician, and supposed seer. Uh, he lived from 1503 to 1566. His most famous work is uh, Le Prophétie, or The Prophecies in English. <laughs> Uh, it was published in 1555, <laughs> eleven years before his. death. You didn't really need to translate that. I <laughs> I got it. Uh, it's a collection. This book, the prophecies. It's a collection of 942 poetic quatrains, allegedly predicting future events. Allegedly. Supposedly, <laughs> the bit, the allegedly is actually uh, uh, highlighted. It's bold and it's <laughs> underlined here on the page. <laughs> Make sure you got it. (laughs) The lawyers really wanted us to include a legend. So supposedly this guy would stay awake every night for several years, staring into a brass bowl filled with water. He'd sort of meditate or enter some kind of trance and he'd see the, you know, see into the future. Um, Now there are a lot of embellished or just downright false claims out there attributed to Nostradamus. There was one circulating, uh, about COVID-19 and him predicting that, that Snopes, you know, it was it was BS. Um, but there are actually a few pretty legitimate uh, prediction victories, I might call them, uh, for him, including air travel. He said, people will travel safely through the sky. The year of the great fire of London, the blood of the just will be demanded of London burnt by fire and three times 20 plus six. Uh, he predicted the rise of Hitler. The Nostradamus referred to him as Hister. Uh, and last but not least, he wrote something that bears a pretty striking resemblance to 9-11. The sky will bo- burn at a 45 degrees. Fire approaches the great new city. Immediately a huge scattered flame leaps up. So, yeah, you could call these things sort of vague. Uh, but I don't know, man. I got a, I got a few new predictions for you for 2021. Now, my source for this comes from yearly-horoscope.org. <laughs> Sounds legit. <laughs> Horoscopes, huh? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I told you you'd like
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm definitely going
0: gonna, gonna to definitely link to this highly uh, reliable and accurate article in the show notes. So starting from the bottom of the list and working my way up, and I'm I'm sorry if you're feeling positive about 2021. Things are going to go in the <laughs> in the different direction. I'm sorry to pop your bubble oh, here. Oh no, your Santa snow globe. But uh, seven, the American soldiers will have brain chip implants. Six, a devastating earthquake will destroy California. Five, a comet will hit the Earth or at least come very close. Four, solar storms. Three, the Muslims will lead the world. Two. A famine of biblical proportions, and finally, number one. Actually, I'm just gonna I'm just, I'm just gonna read the direct poem itself. Few young people, half dead, to give a start. Dead through spite, he will cause the others to shine, and in an exalted place, some great evils to occur. Sad concepts will come to harm each one. Temporal dignified, the mass to succeed. Fathers and mothers, dead of infinite sorrows. Women in Mourning, the pestilent she monster, the great one to be no Oof. more, all the world to end. So number one on this list, Josh, it says Zombie Apocalypse. Yes. There it is.
1: <laughs> all right, I'm gonna change everything I said about Nostradamus. If you can bring <laughs> us Zombie Apocalypse, buddy, I'm a fan.
0: Well, he's not. He's not bringing it into existence. He's just. He's already seen this like 500 years ago. He's just calling. He's, he's just good. calling the shots. As he's as he's he's good. He's damn good.
1: Uh, <laughs> so a lot of those do it. seem very yeah. likely. Brain chips, earthquakes. Yeah. I mean, don't comets pass us like every six months or
0: something? Well, according to this article, um, there the uh, comet one. There is a comet that is predicted to uh, pass pretty close in 2021. But like you said, it, it's hard to tell. If this is just the vague ramblings of a madman or if he's yep. spot on. <laughs> nope. Well, I'm going with option A. <laughs> the good news is... But I is, think that he definitely it, had... Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: He had a theme. I mean, it's it is kind of like the horoscope theme of making vague predictions that are just manipulatable within your own mind to fit like your own kind of your own vision of the world and your own vision of reality. And it's, I mean, it is why like horoscopes work quote unquote, and they're so popular because you know, it's like a fortune cookie. You could totally make most of these vague predictions apply to yourself, especially if you're looking for a reason, you know, like something that I've always said is like, i don't believe that things happen for a reason i believe that things happen and then people will find a reason and the reason that you find is kind of based on your own you know your own outlook on life so like people that have a positive outlook would typically find a positive reason even if it's something bad people with a negative outlook will typically find a negative reason for something even if it's something objectively good and that's kind of like the same concept of like these predictions and horoscopes you know if you if you buy into the idea of predictions and then you read deeply enough into it, you can find a way to make it apply to any number of events that have happened throughout our history.
0: So still not convinced, huh? Well, Oh no, I'm 100% (laughs) sold. Is that not what that (laughs) sounded like? For the listeners out there, if (laughs) you are so upset with Josh's uh, closed mind, don't worry, I will also link... Uh, to another article that has a great clip in it um, that's William Shatner on a show called The Unexplained talking about a few more of uh, Nostradamus's predictions because yeah there are some vague uh, horoscopes and even some vague fortune cookies out there but I gotta say some of these predictions are uh, they're just they're just a little bit more specific I think it does warrant just another look so i'll send you some stuff i'll I'll link it in the show notes and and listeners you decide for yourselves
1: and if you don't like my take on it jam a couple of one wheels in your ears (laughs) and move along
0: (laughs) well that's it 2021 buckle up zombie apocalypse (laughs) here we come
1: what's on your uh what's on your content circuit
0: yeah, well, so uh, as you know, the Wi-Fi uh, where I currently reside, it was out for like three and a half days, absolutely no internet. So I finished a book and got about halfway through another book. <laughs> so, that dude, a- talking about analog content? Analog content, yeah, the, where you got to like put the words, the words in your eyes and it makes the image in your head. Instead so of the it's TV do it like telepathy. for you, <laughs> yeah. No, actually, um, I'm really happy to. I I wrapped up 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's honestly the best book I've ever read. Um, nice. It might even be your uh, uh, your uh, birthday present coming up. Ooh, um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> a few months no, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, that's a
1: few months, but that would be great. I'd love to check it out.
0: Yeah, if if I were to buy you a book, should it? Would you read a paperback book, or do you only consume uh, analog content on your phone? Uh, so I have
1: been pretty hardcore about kindling it up f- with books, okay. mainly because when I start reading a book, I like to always have it with me, and kind of like you know, like the idea of the content circuit, uh, that that concept came to me because of like kind of the way I consume content. I do a lot of it through my phone, but I'd say that there's always a book, a movie, a podcast, a show and a game that I'm like currently into. And what's nice about the phone is that you can have most of those things just like at your fingertips. So I can like bounce between them, you know, over the course of however long it takes me to consume it all. So most of what I read these days is digital versions of books. In fact, I don't even know if I would remember how to interface with a real book. Just kind of yeah, like Yeah, you got to like you lick you your fingers open it before you dump turn the, the page. words out onto your face. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember now. <laughs> yeah, you got to scoop read, the words up and inhale yeah, them I, quickly. Yeah. I would read a uh, I would read a paperback though, and it's kind of, it's nice sometimes to have like a really ni- uh, you know, a a good, real book to hold, put on your shelf when you're, when you're done with it. Yeah, so you can smack zombies with them. Exactly. With a nice, yeah, heavy book. Weapon.
0: Well, I'm so yep. glad I asked you your uh, personal preferences on this public show. Um, I'll keep that in mind. So, uh, anyway, I finished that book. I started uh, The Indifferent Stars Above. You probably have heard the last podcast on the left cover the story of the Donner Party. Back it's in the so interesting. 18s. Oh my gosh! I I just book. listened to it yesterday. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. No kidding. Well, it's been a it's been a while since I've listened to the podcast. But actually, the in different stars above, I can't remember where I first heard about that book. But it's been on my radar. I think for about two years, I've wanted to read this book. Um, and honestly, I'm a little scared too. I mean, it's like extremely disturbing. I think what the the most disturbing aspect of the Donner Party is the fact that this is not fiction. Like this is real. It's gruesome. It happened. It's history. It's a history book, uh, but it is just also just a extremely uh, interesting and bizarre facet of Western pioneer uh, events. So it's it's very good so it's far. It's a great title too. Yeah. Oh, so that good. title <laughs> just like fills me with dread. <laughs> me too. I love it. It seems <laughs> so cold wherever that title is oh my gosh i know it i know we're not even into the into the crazy stuff yet so yeah that's that's what's on my content circuit not a whole not a whole lot just just uh like our listeners just a few but excellent (laughs) (laughs) well i uh
1: i actually just watched it's not Probably not quite the same caliber as all this cerebral content you're consuming, but I just watched Deadpool two the other day, and oh nice! I was under the impression that it was not good, but man, it was so good. And Brett, I got to tell you, our Hulu subscription—I'm totally into it. Not being able to download the uh, the content and watch it when you don't have an internet connection is really not preventing me from enjoying that streaming service. I'm like super into what they have on there. So I watched uh, watched Deadpool 2. I just watched the episode uh, Always Sunny where they smoke crack so they can get on welfare. <laughs> yeah. And it was that's a, that's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> what was so funny about it was when we were writing the intro for our Always Sunny episode and we were trying to come up with like three really offensive things that you had talked about. And I kept we kept like rolling around the smoking crack thing and I was like, "Ah, just isn't really that offensive. It's just kind of a joke." But after I watched the episode, I was like, "Oh my god, this is so rough." <laughs> I could totally see where Brett's coming from now because they did smoking crack, some serious offensive justice on that show. Man, it is <laughs> so gnarly.
0: Uh, it's right up there with Huff and Paint, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a I'm great glad you, uh, I can't believe you they that make that stuff funny. Like they make it so funny. I just don't understand. I just, uh oh, it's, it's so great. Red so good. That's why yeah. it's on our show. It's that's top-notch it. content. Yeah,
1: man. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, that's about it. I've got a few other things, but maybe we'll save them for
0: another time. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to get into some content. Ooh, content.
1: Hello, listeners. Don't hit the skip forward button just yet. This is not an ad. This is a call for you guys and gals to get involved with the show.
0: So we want to hear from you about your favorite pieces of content and why they're the best. Or you can even tell us if you've checked out a piece of content because we recommended it and uh, if you loved it or not. So contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com or on Instagram or Facebook at the contentclearinghouse. And we will read your letters on the air right here. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. Okay, back to the show. Ooh, Content. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearing House. So we've already failed at our New Year's resolution. Um, my other... What wills? <laughs> my other New Year's resolution was to listen to Josh talk more about content. So let's make that happen.
1: All right. So what I'm talking about today, this is something that I've been sitting on since the, the conceptualization of this show. And I was waiting until I really felt like I could do it justice because... This is my sapiens, Brett. Ooh. And like sapiens, what I'm talking about today, it's full of space battles. Okay. So I'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> the series of books, The Lost Fleet, by Jack Campbell, or by John G. Himry, if you want to get all non-marketable about it. I can definitely see why he adopted the pin name Jack Campbell, because man, that is a as a bam bam man's name right there. <laughs> But uh, he's. <laughs> I always, I saw Jack Campbell on the cover of these books, and I was like, "That there's no way that's a real person's name." And lo and behold, it's not. It's a pen name. Jack. But Campbell, John G.
0: Henry. Jack Campbell is like the guy that survived the Donner Party with that kind of name. John G. Henry yeah, that is. is the guy that that uh, was eaten first at the Donner Party. It's not Henry. <laughs> oh. it's Henry. Oh yeah, he was Okay, he didn't even make it that. He didn't even make it to the Sierra Nevadas. It's amazing
1: that his ancestors have lived long enough to create one of the greatest series of novels in sci-fi history. So John G. Hemry, he's a retired U.S. Navy officer, and he draws heavily on his knowledge of fleet operations and internal workings for this series. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the story setup, but... It's gonna be there there are gonna be a few minor spoilers, but the series is so long that what I'm talking about today is really just scratching the surface of the story and the concepts. So in The Lost Fleet, humans are a spacefaring race and they're so adept at it that of course it has devolved into war, like everything we do. And the war has been raging on for over a hundred years and no one really knows how it started. So there are two factions. There are the Alliance and the Syndicates and uh these two these two factions reflect the political climate of contemporary superpowers with the alliance being a democratic society and the syndicate being modeled on a totalitarian government but with a corporate twist so when the story begins the alliance fleet is trapped hundreds of light years behind the syndicate lines and they they're lured, that, lured there in, in an attempt to strike this decisive blow that could potentially win the war But the situation is basically hopeless as most of the Alliance flag officers have been executed during a negotiation after the battle fails. But the Alliance, Brett, they have a secret weapon. (laughs) So the main character of this series, John Blackjack Geary, another man's name. So he's this captain who was thought to have been lost in the initial engagement of this hundred-year-long war. And in his absence, this legend of him being this mythological leader has sprung up. The Alliance basically use, uses the legend of Black Jack Geary in an attempt to build morale amongst the fleet. And the myth says that he will return when the Alliance needs him most. He just so happens to have been rescued from a failing survival pod on the way out to this battle. And he's the last survivor of his doomed ship that was lost over a hundred years ago. And he slept through most of the war in suspended animation, which is how the survival pods protect and preserve people while they're waiting to be rescued. That's a heavy sleeper right there. Basic setup. And it's yeah, it's all the story you really need to know to understand why this series of books is so fantastic.
0: You know, uh, Josh, you recommended this series to me a long time ago, uh, and like Old Man's War, I read it, and it was freaking awesome. It's so good. Again, like Old Man's War, this is
1: one of the pieces of content that was kind of like the genesis of this show. This was something that I've like probably sold to 15, 20 people over the course of me having known it existed. And I'm really excited to bring it to you guys today because this is my favorite series of books ever, and it is quite the series. It's 18 books deep. So, Dauntless is the first book. Uh, the uh, The series is broken into four mini series. There's the Lost Fleet, Beyond the Frontier, the Lost Stars, and the Genesis Fleet. And it's essentially one long story. Like you can read it from beginning to end, and you're going to feel like you're continuously pushing down the same narrative storyline the entire time. So before I go into why this book is so fantastic, I want to talk a little bit about like the syndicate and the Alliance because they're, uh, the interplay between these different superpowers is like a, a big part of the big part of the universe. So the syndicate or the syndics as they call them, they're a corporate state run, uh, uh, corporate state run by dictators who call themselves servants of the people. And these are the same people that they enslave. Now, the, the free worlds of the alliance were a constant threat to the dictators of the syndicate world. And they were living examples that a representative government with civil, civil liberties could coexist with greater security and prosperity than the syndics could ever dream of. So essentially, uh, the alliance and its freedom is a direct challenge to the syndicate way of life. And that's thought to be like why one of the reasons this war is raging, and the Syndic starships their uh, their commanders are not called captains, they're called CEOs, which is very corporate. And the Syndicate rules through fear and intimidation, like they keep orbital bombardment weapons in orbit over their own planets to keep their population in line. Now the Alliance, on the other hand. They at least have the veneer of democracy with their elected officials and independently run planets and star systems it's very similar to how the states in the united states here work in conjunction with the federal government but like our own government under the surface there are different groups vying for power they're double crossing each other they're throwing their own people under the bus in an attempt to get ahead and so the political environment of this universe is complex it's full of different shades of gray there are good people and bad people on both sides, and that makes for a very interesting setup for this story to revolve around. But when I was reading this, and I was thinking about like how the syndicate and the alliance hold and project power, it was kind of making me think about the very concept of power. So I had this, this is a realization I had when I was a child, going to church and once I realized that I didn't care about the consequences, that church really held no power over me anymore. And that's something that's kind of like carried me through my life. You know, it's like there are certain institutions in this world that you do not want to cross because the consequences that they can inflict on you are very bad. You know, like the the police or the, you know, just the laws of the land. These are things that you don't want to cross. And the the syndics their style of rule is forcing power onto their citizens. Like in general, I think that governmental power comes on the heels of a state monopoly of violence. And in this story, the threat of the orbital bombardment weapons, they force that violence on these backwater star systems that would otherwise really be like under no control of the syndicate government. That's hundreds of light years away. And I, I think that like, all governments kind of operate on a certain degree of this principle, just more civilized, a more civilized version of this in our democratic environment. But still, I think that most of the laws that are enforced are kind of backed up
0: by the state's monopoly on violence. So just to back up a little bit, are you saying that getting banned from entering the Mormon temple from the, the Church of Latter-day Saints was not enough of a punishment for you, <laughs> not quite, man. When I realized wow. that I did
1: not care about what happened at church, I was so bad. Oh my god!
0: <laughs> I took off my blessed magic underwear. You were so naughty, I Josh. I did, Brett.
1: <laughs> I know. So that's kind of a that's kind of a setup on how. These different uh, superpowers rule and kind of how it relates to our own world. Uh, Jack Campbell, if you will, is definitely drawing on his knowledge of like the geopolitical environment of the world, you know, of of today. And he just kind of expands those ideas out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. And you get these very different systems of rule, which is really interesting.
0: That is like all sci fi. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's really cool. But like all sci-fi, Brett, this story, uh, it does have its MacGuffins. There are a lot of like tropes and kind of some hand-wavy things that you have to kind of get behind. So there's like traveling in space with jump points. You know, they'll, the, There will be these gravity wells towards the outside of solar systems that allow them to warp between stars. There's also a uh, uh, device called a hypernet, which is these series of gates that allow like much faster travel than, uh, than jump points. And they'll build these hypernets into like well-off star systems or places like with strategic value. So they have two different ways of moving around. They can jump in the slow, faster-than-light method uh, using jump points or the fast, faster-than-light method using the hypernet. And they have things like inertial dampeners, artificial gravity. And, of course, there's the classic trope of the technological or conceptual straight man that sci-fi uses. Are you familiar with this idea?
0: Uh, are you, You're you talking about the Jason Bateman of space? Exactly. I, I'm not sure where you're going with this, no.
1: Well, sci-fi uses this, this straight man idea of either has something to do with the technology of the world or the concepts of the world or both. But it's basically a person that like is your analog stand in as the reader, you know, sci-fi universes are constructed in a way that they exist long before the reader ever ever shows up. And Mm -hmm. in theory, they continue to exist after you leave. You know, that's like how much background the authors usually put into things like this. But since you're typically being plopped into the middle of a timeline, you need to have someone explaining these things to you. And it's pretty cheesy to just have an exposition dump. So usually there'll be like this straight man person that is unfamiliar with the things that's happening around them. And that, you know, the characters in the story will explain it to them in a very natural way, the same way that, you know, someone would explain it to us if we dropped into this lost fleet universe. And that's kind of like the role that Blackjack Geary plays because he's like essentially a man
0: out of time. But he's not, I mean, that's not just, like, a narrative tool to help explain background, uh, is it? Like, I mean, because that character, like, it's part of his motivations, it's part of the storytelling, is, like, he, you know, he kind of approaches things from a different, Way And he has a different strategy that is like better than the most cutting edge strategies that they have because they hadn't thought of using the old methods. And I don't know. I see what you're saying. it can it can serve both functions, I think. Oh,
1: it definitely does. Like it's not a it's definitely not like a two dimensional idea represented in this story. That's just kind of like a role that's layered onto him since he's your main character in the story. It makes sense for them to be explaining all these new things to him and then you know in turn they're actually explaining it to you, the reader. And I think that like you know once you understand that that trope exists of the conceptual straight man, you'll start seeing it in sci-fi, you see it in fantasy. you see it in a lot of really like dense works of art where you need to understand the world but you're not starting you know from square one in the world. but that's just one role that he fills in this story.
0: okay. Yeah, I, Marvel movies always do, you know, the most recent uh, Marvel Avengers where they're, like, talking about time travel and, you know, but they, they always fight, you always know, like, okay, this is a way to explain the time travel to the audience, but they make it, like, fun and engaging, so. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't seem to, like, annoying.
1: You have a term to put on it now, the conceptual straight man. Also, Tenet, boom,
0: full of conceptual <laughs> straight <laughs> man. Very true. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And you still need like YouTube video explanations to explain the conceptual straight man talks of Tenet. Yes, that's it's like very dense. It's the inception yep. of movies. It's the Christopher
1: Nolan way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but the true meat of this series, and you'll know this since you've uh, you've read this, but the real selling point is how the space battles work, and they are four-dimensional space battles it's like 4d chess if you will or as this book puts it it's a ballet in four dimensions with the different parts staggered through different layers of time delays and seeing and communication so essentially these guys will the fleet will jump into a system the computer will assign up and down based on the orbital plane of the system and then and also the orientation in which the fleet enters and then the direction closest to the star is known as starboard 180 degrees from that is known as port and that's kind of their you know every time they jump in that will be assigned and that's how they use to the the terms they use to communicate with the fleet for coordinated actions and there are two factors that they use when they are when they are coordinating these battles one is the speed the ships are traveling which is Between 0.1 and 0.2 light speed, which is up to 18,628 miles per second, which is ridiculous. Uh, Anything over 0.2 light speed, they start to get these relativistic distortions on their sensors, and they can't really view the outside world. And the other factor is the speed of light, which is 186,628 miles per second, or six hundred and seventy million six hundred and sixteen thousand six hundred twenty nine miles per hour because i did my science research
0: (laughs) Uh, did you just like uh shine a light across the room with a stopwatch i was like like, do the math yep that's (laughs) it yep you know how good i am at math (laughs) yeah
1: so when they are when they are viewing these battles on these like astronomical scales sometimes they're they're looking all the way across a solar system, and they can't really make out details on what they're viewing because it's so far away. So they also think about movement when they're viewing it on their sensors in terms of a uh, blue shift, which is an object approaching in space. The, the blue light is getting brighter. Or they'll discuss it in red shift, which is an object traveling away, and that's the red light, the the uh, red frequency of light getting brighter because red is the longest frequency Now, can I actually
0: uh, mention something about this? Definitely. So uh, I first heard about redshift. Um, So it's basically the Doppler effect with sound is the Doppler effect. So if you hear like an ambulance driving towards you as it passes, the uh, pitch lowers a little bit because, you know, sound is just a wave. And if that object that's creating that wave to them, you know, relatively speaking, it's it's the same pitch. But if you're stationary relative to you – it's higher pitched until it passes you because that wave is getting compressed and then elongated. Well, the interesting thing is about redshift. It's this, you know, it's the same concept as the Doppler effect with light. This is how scientists discovered that the earth, uh, the universe, not the earth, the universe is expanding because they started looking around. They knew what the different compositions of different stars and how much, you know, of uh, the electromagnetic spectrum they were giving off, well, they realized everything was shifted red, and so from our perspective, everything is moving away from us and accelerating, and and uh, so that's actually a real thing. That's a scientific, like yeah, yeah. God, it's so, so bizarre terrible. to think about everything in the
1: universe moving away from us.
0: Yeah, it hurt about so twenty twenty. It's hard. like we're out of here.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess it's true that everything does revolve around the Earth. So because of these huge distances, they'll also they'll often be viewing time-late imagery of the state of the solar system that they're in. So they may be viewing an enemy fleet that's 10 light minutes away with everything that they see is 10 minutes old. So they're basically looking into the past and viewing events that have already occurred. And as you can imagine, this causes all kinds of issues for trying to coordinate a fleet. And these complex maneuvers that they're trying to pull off so there's also a commu- communication delay so amongst the fleet the ships may be spread out over several light minutes so the ships on the outskirts of the fleet may be getting time delayed information from Geary on the flagship and as a frame of reference the earth is eight ish light minutes from the sun that really is a astronomical reference point and it's so massively large that it's almost impossible to comprehend but that's like the scale that these formations are operating on jeez that's so cool
0: it's such a great concept for for a book or just for uh, sci-fi like space battle
1: so fascinating but so, so this like this time delay it feeds into like everything they do But it can really work in their favor also so when they jump into a new system depending on how far the jump point is from the populated area they may have like minutes or hours of remaining completely undetected as it takes the light from their arrival to reach the sensors of the enemy ships and installation and because of the complexities and the requirements of coordination with this type of battle and because the losses have been so high in this hundred year war many of the expert practitioners of this art form have been lost so for decades both sides the alliance and the syndics have just been hurling their fleets together in these head-on engagements and they're just hoping for luck and overwhelming firepower to allow their side to come out on top of the battle so it's basically been a war of attrition you know with both sides just coming out just
0: completely decimated and destroyed after every encounter but with Some might say Black that's Jagiri. A, yeah. Oh I was going to say the war of attrition that some might say it's the the best kind of war. Really?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, That's the kind that <laughs> can go on for hundreds of years Ugh. until every person on your side is dead. <laughs> so with, with Geary's rescue, the Alliance is gifted this expert from the past that knows how to coordinate across these distances. He knows how to handle the time delays and how to make the speed of light work in the Alliance's advantage. So he also knows how to inspire his captains with proper leadership and empower them to operate independently. Like you mentioned earlier, the the fleet captains were kind of like this unruly gang of just solo you know attackers you know they're not really coordinating their battles they get into these very simple formations and just fly towards each other and their fleet is kind of like based on honor and their honor is you know it's it's raised every time they kill an enemy so a lot of a lot of the battles were just devolving into one-on-one engagements, ships flying around trying to get as many kills as they could. And, of course, that just results in everyone dying. You know, there's there's no coordination, so ships are just getting lost left and right. But McGeary changes it all. He does. He brings back his archaic skills from the past, and he instills them into the commanders of the future. But with this, even with his knowledge of space battles, they're nothing like what you've seen in movies. Like, they aren't dogfights. They're these intricately positioned fleets. They're blasting past each other so fast that the human senses can't even register. So the fleet form formations will revolve around these large capital battleships and these slightly smaller but more maneuverable battle cruisers, And they bring to bear this massive amount of firepower. And on the outside of their formations, they're typically being shielded by these smaller light and heavy cruisers. So every engagement sees several small ships just being picked off from the outside of the formation. It's almost like this expendable piece of armor around the capital ships, but each ship that's destroyed, you know, it's hundreds of lives that are lost. And often there, there isn't even time to abandon the ship since the destruction seems to teleport out of nowhere at 18,000 miles per second and head on pass. So the, uh, the battles, like when they do happen, they are fast. They're in the hands of the computers essentially. And, and, often like when they see the destruction that happens afterwards,
0: it's just like a blink of light. And then the ship is completely gone. You know, this reminds me of, uh, so after I, I listened to that UFO episode of uh, Joe Rogan's podcast with Jacques Valet, um, I went on to listen to Lex Friedman. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a scientist, um, out of, uh, Stanford. And he interviewed, uh, commander David Fravor, now they didn't talk about like the focus of the conversation wasn't the Tic Tac UFO incident. Uh it, they they talked about weapon systems, they talked about being in the Navy, Commander Fravor, of course was the pilot that saw the white Tic Tac. Um he flew the A6, which is the uh, same plane that my dad flew actually in the Navy in Intruder. Vietnam. Yeah, the A6 Intruder exactly, the Grumman Ironworks. And uh, Fravor talked. He was in Top Gun. He was an instructor pilot. So, so and uh, and Lex Friedman, the guy doing the interview, uh, he he specializes in like artificial intelligence. I think is his thing. So the conversation was fascinating. Like the the first like hour and a half was just about weapon systems and automation and how much like crew coordination uh, is impacted and and how much is is like being moved over towards uh, automation and computers. But this kind of reminds me of that like that's where the the future is going to be I think of you know probably war. Um, it already is to some degree that way in aviation. I mean, a lot of people think the autopilot just does all the flying. I mean, it it it, it is definitely there's sophisticated autopilots out there that you can offload a lot of tasks but i mean it really is a combination of a human being making decisions uh managing and um kind of watching all of the different automating automation functions but it's it's like a combination of the of of both parties and it sounds like this these space battles are the same way like you you couldn't use humans for this but you couldn't use just computers either yeah, so they will. I mean, there's like this
1: very intricate relationship between the humans and the computers, and they make a big point about not wanting to create like a fully automated ship because they don't want to put that kind of power into the hands of an artificial intelligence. But they, you know, they'll have like their gunner crews that operate their like Hell Lance cannons or their like Spectre missile launchers. But those crews are basically just maintenancing. The equipment to make sure that it's ready to fire when the when the computer controlled firing signal comes so gary will plan out his battles you know he'll plan out these these intricate maneuvers of different sub formations all coming together and you know a, a perfect point to intercept the enemy and when they get close to an engagement they have these engagement envelopes for the weapons and then when the enemy passes through it's all on automatic fire and it seems like you know, like if a space battle like this was actually happening, you would have to operate it that way. Even if you were traveling at, you know, the, the speeds that our current ships travel at, you would still need something like this. You know, you couldn't just be flying around, boo, 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 boo pushing the
0: shoot yeah. button. <laughs> now, have you looked at uh, Dirk Loeschel's DeviantArt Spaceship Comparison uh, poster that we discussed not too long ago. Have you looked for the Lost Fleet series ships on there?
1: Of course, Brett. What do you think <laughs> I am? A non contentologist? It's not on there. Oh, but the reason man. why uh-huh. is because there's there's not a whole lot of like visual representation for this story. There's there's a comic book, but you know, the there's no like just omnibus collection of what all the ships look like. Gotcha. And I've looked mm-hmm. so much because when I read something, I really like to visualize it the way that the author intended. And usually like you can find like some really cool artwork associated with this stuff. But strangely, like there's not a whole lot with this series, huh? But I was looking up when I was researching this, I was looking up, you know, what space battles would be like with our current technology. And of course, like I found this article, it's, know why space battles wouldn't be anything like sci-fi this is a medium.com article so this is like an excerpt from the article that explains what a space battle would potentially be like with our current tech and it says nothing in space is stationary orbiting the earth a fleet of ships already has a velocity in the direction of their orbit and trying to launch a different direction is like trying to hit something with a ball out of a moving car you have to throw the ball early likewise Ships launch to Mars by adding extra velocity to their orbit earlier so the orbits become elongated like an ellipse. If you apply enough extra velocity to an orbit, the ellipse will become elongated so it will actually detach from the orbit. Once a ship has detached from Earth's orbit, it can continue to add velocity to warp its orbit around the sun until the furthest side of the ellipse, the aphelion, is at the distance of Mars' orbit said ship also has to make sure that Mars will be at the aphelion when it engages in such a maneuver. Essentially it's explaining orbital mechanics to an idiot like me. And, uh, I, I was looking, I was kind of wondering like how orbital mechanics would like play into this story. So I looked up the fastest man-made object. This is the, uh, helio satellite. These are the satellites that were designed to study the sun. Uh, there were two of them, and they were designed in 1970. The satellites broke all spacecraft speed records and flew closer to the sun than even Mercury, and it only took these probes two years to get to the sun. They were traveling at 157,078 miles an hour. And our fastest planet, Mercury, orbits at 170,087 miles per hour. So because of this, the space battles with our current tech would, completely be restricted to using orbital mechanics and gravity well acceleration to make intercepts and with the speeds that the planets orbit if you were traveling the speeds they describe in this book which is 18,000 miles per second it seems like you truly could fly around them without being susceptible to the type of orbital mechanics that restrict us currently
0: now did you know astronauts used to uh, catch their poop in a bag when they needed to poop (laughs) in space (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as opposed to what, just letting it fly around and get in their instrument panels? Yeah, which it, it would. It would get loose sometimes and some poop would be floating around. True story. Yeah, I, th-
1: I think I actually heard something about that <laughs> on the last podcast recently. <laughs> That's orbital mechanics for you. <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> so I did a lot of quote-unquote science research for this, and uh, kind of the conclusion that I came to was that Ships could totally fly like they do in the Lost Fleet. And that seems very, very appropriate and true to me. My well documented science background that I'm always talking <laughs> about, Brett. So for me, it's really easy for me to suspend disbelief and just imagine that these uh, space battles work exactly like they do in the book.
0: Well, if there's anybody, if there's any person I'm going to trust in life, it's a guy whose made up name <laughs> is Jack Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes.
1: You know, uh, he may be a liar about his name, but you can trust him when it comes to orbital mechanics and fleet movements. (laughs) Absolutely. So there's this weird thing in this book, though. They they make this point, like, when people are explaining things to Geary, he always says, oh, like when they explain something to him. And then they, like, have his own little inner monologue where he's like, I got to stop saying that. Like, he, like, has, like, a complex about it. So I was thinking, like, here's something that might give you a complex. Um, remember in the last show when you had all that anxiety about the Holland Netherlands controversy? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, like, are there any are there any words that you use in this show that are like filler words for you? Things that Probably. like any time you say it, you're like, God, I gotta stop saying that. Probably because I've thought about it with the, thought about it specifically for me. I say so, all the time when I'm I, talking. We all do, and when, I think that's pretty. Common. I know, but when I go back and I listen to the, I listen to the edit. There's all these times where I'm like, "Yep, I said so again, right there." But I was thinking that we might be able to spin that into a content clearinghouse shirt that just has like our logo on the front and just says "so dot dot dot" on the back. That could be some merch right there, Brett.
0: <laughs> all right.
1: Or it could say so dot dot dot, and then like Josh Evans.
0: Yeah, that's yep. that's an idea I think that would sell. That is yep. definitely
1: an idea. So think about all the stupid things you say, and then we could just make a running tally.
0: We could have like merch for days. Okay. All already right. trying to, already trying to build up the the merch store. I got it. Exactly. <laughs>
1: All right, so getting back,
0: uh, so um, excuse me,
1: so getting back to this book, uh, one of the greatest things about it is there's a willingness to like set something up nine, ten books in advance and then pay it off like way down the road, and that's like a, like a commitment to dramatic timing that I really appreciate. There's not a whole lot of that in like modern entertainment, you know, most of most of the shows that we watch, like they want to like bam, 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 hit you with stuff and like pay it off immediately. But it's really a, I think it's like a really sign, a sign of really great writing that Jack Campbell, JG Henry will set stuff up in book one that way down the road it like comes back and you're like, oh, I forgot that even happened, you know? Yeah. So he really had like a plan when he was creating these books. It was like, you know, a ten year plan for the entire story.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's that is not very common for sure. I feel like you see that a lot in the Mandalorian. The you know, Walking Dead does that. Walking Dead for sure. Yeah, That's exactly. Too. Yep. Walking Dead has set stuff up in season one that paid off like five, six seasons down the road. Yeah, you know, I feel like I feel like uh, twenty fourteen set stuff up, or no, twenty sixteen set stuff up that really paid off in twenty twenty. <laughs> that is a
1: commitment to dramatic timing. I did not realize that the uh, U.S. government had. Yeah. <laughs> there goes all my respect. It just like whoop came right back to me.
0: There you go. They're great
1: story writers. <laughs> so to wrap this thing up, Brett, yes. the universe of the lost fleet, it's so rich. The tactics are so complex. All the <laughs> standard uh, sci-fi MacGuffins are present. Like the way this book makes me think about movement, and visualize spaces. It's unlike any other piece of sci-fi fiction I've ever encountered. Now I'm a contentologist, not a scienceologist. but I feel <laughs> That if the technology described in this book existed, space battles would work exactly like they're described here. That just, it just seems so right to me. And the internal logic is so well thought out that I was able to start imagining the strategies that Geary was going to use to command his fleet. And after a while, like I was actually guessing right because the basics of space combat have been so ingrained by the story. And I was able to apply the fundamentals and come up with these realistic tactics. And that's something that no other series has ever really done for me. It just like sucked me in so completely that I can really start thinking in their world. And I started reading Dauntless, the first book in the series, to re-up on my knowledge to write this. But now I'm going to just keep going and read all 18 books for a third time. And that is the power of amazing sci-fi right there,
0: buddy. Woo! That's awesome. Josh, that was so, so good. <laughs> Uh, bam, bam. I loved this book so series. Count. I'm I'm going to have to uh, revisit this for sure because I definitely remember that uh, one of the strengths of this series was just the strength of the protagonist because I, you know, from my perspective, something that I uh, took away from the books is I love just seeing good leadership in fiction. Like, how does somebody write, like, a, you know, a, a captain that is, like, almost a myth in just his greatness but then – the myth actually, uh, the man really embodies the myth. And also, the space battles, you know, we know somebody in the Space Force. I think they're going to be called the Guardians. That's the most recent thing that I've heard. So we're going to have to ask uh, Jojo, another listener we can <laughs> speak of by uh, on a first-name basis with, we'll have to ask him, uh, you know, if these inertial gravity well... Uh, Hypernets are uh, in development. Maybe he can give us the insider scoop. I'm sure he would be more than willing to reveal that. Yeah. <laughs> I he he'll just have to, you know, sacrifice his top secret clearance and and probably uh, uh get court-martialed by Bill McGeary himself. What was the name? I forgot already. <laughs> Jack Campbell. <laughs> Black Jack Geary. Black Jack Geary. That's it. Well, thanks to the listeners for surviving 2020 and spending some of your 2020 you with us on the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, you can reach out to us, uh, Gmail. We've got a Gmail. That's a thing. Content clearinghouse at gmail.com. On Instagram, we're at the Content Clearinghouse. Same with Facebook, the Clearinghouse. The Content Clearinghouse. I'm not a speakerologist, Josh. <laughs> uh, tune in. Uh, we're going to have some more content coming to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Tell your friends about us. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. We love you.